Research for what? Hello and welcome to Research for What, the podcast that discusses scientific research, its purpose and impact. I'm your host, Ron Bouvray. Each week, I will interview recognized thought leaders who share the same passion for science and research and invest the energy, time or money. We will talk about the challenges and opportunities for research. I'm also very keen to find out how experts define impact and what methods they use to measure it. Every week, I will ask the question, research for what? Okay, so in this episode, I'm going to talk with Eric Knight. Eric is a professor of strategic management at the University of Sydney Business School, and he is a pro-vice-chancellor for research, enterprise and engagement at the University of Sydney. Eric also holds board members' positions in organizations that promote new innovative and technologies. Eric, can I start by asking you what is a pro-vice-chancellor for research in one of the top universities in Australia? Yes. Well, you know, I think one of the things that's worth saying up front is that you know, the discovery that happens in, research, in universities, the teaching that we do, is all often pursued by faculty members. And so my job as a pro-vice-chancellor is really to support and encourage and lift the ambitions of faculty members across the institution, but increasingly we're thinking about this across the sector, to think about the impact of the work that they're doing, to find meaning in how the research that they're doing, and my focus is on, on the research domain of enterprise and engagement, how the research they're doing can find its way out into the world to make a difference uh, for communities and for end users of various sorts. So I am involved in all the different aspects of that mission, from the kind of intricacies of mechanisms and incentives in the organisation to removing barriers, to having one-on-one conversations with researchers who are thinking about how they're going to shape their career uh, over the next 10 years and beyond. Right. So looking at the website of the University of Sydney, the first big banner on the website says research for impact. Can I ask you what this means for university? Yeah, good question. Well, I mean, I think a couple of pieces to respond to there. So firstly, I think the impact agenda has come through federal government directions around the a recognition of impact in ERA rankings. And so yes. there's been an impact and engagement process with ERA that has allowed universities to define what impact means through the narratives of research projects and researchers who have gone out and made a difference in the world. So changed people's lives, come up with a breakthrough discovery, improved human health and well-being in some meaningful way. And that has a variety of different manifestations. But I think what sort of sits at the base of all that is often at the individual level, the individual uh, researcher or the research team, a group of people who have a particular aspiration of how they want to see the world differently, and they go out and make that difference. And that can take any variety of um, ideas. There's nothing pro forma about it. And often you, it's beholden on the researchers to explain the difference, to account for it, to show it, to illustrate it. So I think that there isn't a single way of accounting for that. That may change over time and people look for proxies for things like contract research income, a number of partnerships that university might have with institutions beyond the organisation. But it doesn't have a kind of pro forma definition. So how much direction do you give to researchers? It really varies. I mean, mean, some of the most satisfying work that I do is uh, sitting down 
with researchers who may be extremely distinguished in their career in a traditional sense, at least in a traditional Australian sense. And we can talk a bit more about what I mean by a traditional Australian sense in a moment. But people who have spent their life winning and being successful in discovery grants, publishing in nature and science, you know, ARC Federation fellows, laureates in some cases, but who have reached a point in their career where they're thinking about their legacy and they want to go beyond changing their field of research to changing an entire industry in which that work is embedded, physicists, material scientists, medical researchers and beyond. And often, you know, my work is sitting down with them just over a coffee and thinking about where do they want to take their career? What do they need to make their research translatable into the world? What are the barriers to that? What resources do they need? I mean, often the shift is in a mindset. So that's the kind of very granular work. And then when you scale that up, you know, I, I try and do events at the level of 20 people, at the level of 100 people, which is really built around the notion that the best inspiration for people to change their work is to meet um, other people who they regard highly and hear about how they have developed their work in a particular direction. So I've built a lot of events around, you know, early mid-career research mentoring with people in industry or alumni or other academics in their field who have had a big difference to foster those conversations and to get them to think differently about the kind of impact they want to have in the world. And so, so I do a me, range of that. I do both the personal and I also do the group and I do the, you know, the broader activities and networking. Right. This is really interesting. And maybe perhaps younger researchers or academics don't have the same luxury to think outside the box. And they have more boxes actually to tick than uh, the more distinguished, more experienced researchers. How can we let them try things and have an impact differently? Well, I mean, the, the first thing to say about that is, you know, I think that that statement, which I don't necessarily disagree with, Rom, very much reflects the Australian context. Right. I mean, you know, I've just come back from Stanford where I was doing some of my own research and uh, meeting with researchers. I mean, the notion that researchers are doing their work to have an impact in the world is germane. And there is no distinction between a fundamental and applied research. It's just not It's just not seen. It's a false dichotomy. I mean, I'm talking about people like Steve Chu. I mean, Steve Chu won the 1997 Nobel Prize in Physics. You know, he has published in Nature and Science. He's a, you, By some measure, you would describe him as a fundamental researcher, but he doesn't think of himself in that way. He thinks right. about the way in which he can make his research have an impact. He's working on battery technology now. He built his early career in atomic physics. And, and so... Yeah, and energy physics, and then he moved into biomedicine and health with mixed with physics. Now, during that time, he wasn't thinking, well, what, how are my peers going to think about me? Throughout that time, he's thinking about how can he have biggest impact on the world that he can have? How can he define a field? Then once he's defined a field, how can he shape an industry? How can he change the government, the world? I mean, he was energy secretary under Obama for a while, and he's yes. moved beyond that now thinking about battery technology because he believes that to solve climate change, we need to get into batteries. So I think that when you're at that level, and I think all academics should aspire to have the biggest impact they have, they're not trying to pass the difference between one paper and the next or, you know, these artificial buckets. They're trying to think about how they have the biggest impact in the world. Now, that's germane in places I've spent time with, uh, such as Oxford University and Stanford University. I think we need to make a germane in Australia. How are we going to do that? Well, it's a difficult time to say this given the COVID crisis, but I do think having academics have that international experience, to spend time in these institutions, to go beyond their boundaries is really important because 
you have to realize the world is a bigger place than just the people in your corridor. And, and when how- you have that experience and you meet those people, you realize that this is what all the top academics in the world are thinking about. Right. And so how do they make the decisions on which impact or which research to do? I mean, I think obviously it's different for each individual, but it is imbued in an understanding of their social context and how they're making a difference to the world. I mean, there are a lot of medical research researchers now who are just fully focused on COVID responses. That's because they realise this is a huge problem. They have the skill set. They want to make a difference. This is not dissimilar to the way American physics moved during World War II when a whole bunch of physics researchers, at least in America and also in the UK, some of the most brilliant mathematical minds and philosophers and physicists became deeply involved in radar technology, in screening and determining the various flight paths for bombers or how to jam radio systems. And that was a contextual decision, but they were thinking about how can they turn their algorithms into something that had an impact in the world. And from that then moved various commercialization opportunities and you know, the emergent nature of Silicon Valley and so forth at the States. And there were other versions of this in MIT and through the UK and beyond. But each of those researchers, and let's take the example of a physicist, is not just thinking about the physics, but they're also thinking about the politics. They're thinking about what the president is thinking about. They're understanding the economics. You know, they're understanding, they're reading The Economist. They're reading The New Yorker. They're thinking about the political and the environmental and the economic and the social context in which that physics is located and they're thinking about how to make a difference in that vein. And I think that that is how it comes because often these great ideas come from the intersection of different disciplines, arbitrating between ideas that haven't moved across fields. And from that, I think people get ideas. Right. Are they asked to, are they taking more risks in wanting to have an impact? You mean so career for example, risk? A career risk. For example, as you described, there are many biologists, physicists, clinicians working on SARS-CoV-2 now, a lot of people are taking more risks than they were before. Yeah. So look, I think there are three three things to say in response to that. I mean, first, I think it does depend a little bit who you work for and how you work for those people. And I mean the individual. I mean, I think there are still very traditional academics who have got their own particular view of the world and probably shape and guide and manage people who are more junior to them within that view of the world. And in that context, it is tricky and it's risky, but it's risky in the manner of working in any in any working relationship in which people perhaps don't feel like they have the autonomy or freedom to pursue things that they may wish to do. Now, that might work well for some people for whom that's what they're seeking to replicate. But this brings me to my second point, which is that I think there is a, ge- a broader generational shift that we're seeing within universities and worldwide about the extent to which people wanting to have an impact in the world. I think we're more connected through social media, through news media. We understand the problems in the world and the challenges that the world faces, such as climate change and proper governance of artificial intelligence, COVID academics, are more interconnected. And so certainly amongst the generation of academics that I know who are making their mark, have recently made their mark, are looking to scale their impact they seek meaning in their professional lives from the difference that they can have in the world. And for them, it's risky not to uh, pursue this. Risky why? Because if they can't find meaning in their job, that's an awful waste of talent, number one. And number two, they're more inclined to leave academia altogether before they have had the chance to make a difference through it. And it's very germane beyond the Australian system for people to leave academia and, and to come back into it. 
you know, I was talking with Mark Tesla-Levine, who's the president of Stanford at the moment, who left Stanford as a professor to go work for Genentech as chief science officer for some years and is now back as the president of Stanford. So I think my point there is that, is that risky? Well, if you think of your career in in very defined terms, it may seem risky because you're leaving your professorship. But if you're in an environment and a milieu in which people understand that and appreciate the impact that you're seeking to have and understand the science that sits beneath that, then actually I think it expands your possibility. Steve Chu, another academic who has moved through the professoriate, you know, was energy secretary, worked at Bell Labs, is back in academia. Now, I think that brings to the third point, which is, you know, there are risks in Australian academia, I think, because perhaps we have um, more traditional structures. My hope is that we can change that. How do we change that? I think it comes down to changing the nature of leadership at universities, from heads of schools to faculty deans to pro-vice-chancellors and deputy vice-chancellors up to the vice-chancellor and beyond. Now, this is very clearly coming from the Senate. It's very clearly coming from the alumni. It's very clearly already played out in US universities, which have always been very attuned to their social context. But I think it's coming to Australia. And I think I wrote a piece in the in the Australian a couple of weeks ago on this point. I think Australia is probably 10, 10 years behind the UK and the US on this topic. So, you know, I think it's probably risky to play against that trend than to be in favour of it. Right. So do we need to open the doors of our universities as well to entrepreneurs, different professions, clinicians, end users, patients? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think we need to think about this. I mean, the quality of the university is determined by the people it can attract. And that's true of its students. It's true of its faculty. And I think increasingly we need to rethink the way in which we have faculty where we have both people who are deep in the theory and can understand the knowledge because that there's nothing so good in a crisis as a good theory. But we also need to think about ways in which we can bring practitioner perspectives into our teaching and into our research. Now, that may mean creating new roles. It may mean engaging with the alumni in new ways, both philanthropically but also through the taught curriculum of universities. I think it may mean rethinking the way we compose the classroom. I mean, Rom, you know this, you know, having come through the design and strategy course in the MBA, which I teach, this is not a course that's taught in which it's a sage on the stage and I'm dictating theory. It's a course in which the organisational partners who we work with are the content, they are the material, and it's their shared insights that allow and perpetuate the student learning, and from that, you know, new and great ideas come. So I think we need to think about how we pull down the boundaries, how we change the way we teach, how we change the way we do research, and ultimately, if as a result of that, students have a great experience, researchers have a huge impact on their community, and the world's a better place, universities will grow in esteem. And I think that the rest will look after itself. And I think that's great because it's also not eroding the mission of the university to create knowledge and improve the community well-being. Absolutely. I mean, we have to teach our students. This is the great pleasure and privilege of being a faculty member at a university. You take each generation year on year and you find a way to let them realise their potential. And my view strongly is that if we are going to fulfil that mission, we need to imbue our students with a sense of the world. Now, that involves both a theoretical conception of the world and also a way to react to the live reality of that world, relative and appropriate to their 
their point in their career. You know, whether it's different, obviously, for fresh, fresh undergraduates versus a PhD student versus an MBA. So I think that that allows us to better fulfill our mission. And then if you think about the research mission of the university, which is to push the frontier of knowledge, well, to push at that frontier, you need both discovery and application. So I think that because, you know, knowledge has its biggest impact when the discovery is relevant enough for it to have a real world impact. So, you know, I I do think that fulfilling our mission is for us to be attuned to our context, to be relevant. And the challenge, of course, and this is a challenge, but it's the challenge that any academic thinks about when they're making a contribution, even a scholarly contribution within a narrow field. You know, the, the nature of a contribution is how can I take what currently exists and push it further, do something new? Well, making a contribution in a theoretical context and an applied context are challenging both. So we just need as academics to think about the challenge of that applied contribution and how we make the best mark that we can on the world. Just to be the devil's advocate, are you asking too much from researchers? Are you asking them to know the world they live in, to read The Economist, but also nature, science, um, and more specific journals? to think about the theoretical impact, but also the applications. Is that too much for what is often a small research team? Well, I mean, firstly, I should say that I always think of academia as a volunteer profession. So people choose to do what they wish to do. Now, what the job of the university to do is to hire the best faculty that we can find. And you would hope the best faculty are people who are inspired to do research and teaching and are naturally curious and interesting people and are curious and interested about the world. So if we do a good job of hiring the right faculty into an institution, it should look after itself. And is it too much to ask? Well, each person has the choice as to what they read and how they read and how they take a critical perspective on the world. But that is the true and great privilege of being an academic, is to have that discerning eye on the world. It's a great privilege to have that role. And I think when it's done well, it is engaged out in the world. And as for people's time, I mean, there are demands on our time. But... Here, I think, is a quite intrinsic choice that we have to make about what we do with any minute of our time, because I think what we're talking about here is not necessarily both and. Sorry, it's not that it's either or. It's not that we kind of either apply do applied research or fundamental research. I think it's that we do both of these things in the sense that even to make a great theoretical contribution, we still have to have our eye out on the world. I mean, I, I just re- recently published a, a very theoretical paper in Academy of Management Review which is basically pure philosophy. (laughs) But to make that contribution, I reached out into quantum physics and took some of the theorems of Niels Bohr and Einstein in quantum physics and applied them into how we think about the world around us. It's a theoretical contribution, but it's cognizant of some of the important theories that are happening in other fields. So I just think that most good contributions, whether in research or teaching, are going to be bridge-spanning anyway. And so I would certainly encourage each of us to think at least to have that as a perspective to to consider in how we go about our work. And how far do we take research out as a university? How far do we go? When do we pass on new inventions, new technologies, new services? How how quickly do we partner with entrepreneurs and users, investors? It's, uh, do we need to create a community where everyone comes together? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have, have to create a community. I mean, I think the answer to that is, is specific to each instance. But I mean, in companies that I have spun out, I haven't been the person who has been the CEO. I mean, that might be a colleague or a friend or a PhD student who has to do the hard graft of raising capital and hiring people and going out and doing sales. 
often the researchers are doing the fundamental discovery or the scientific uh, appraisal and they'll sit on the scientific board for that. But when it gets into the operations and the organisation of that, it gets handed on. I mean, there's yes. also a limit to the kind of resource base of a university. We're not well-placed to do industrial-scale production. I mean, in drug discovery, when you're getting at production-scale economics, the, you know, the chemistry is different, the economics is different. It's not something that a university is well set up to achieve economies of scale around. So I think that grey zone will differ for each particular project, but it's certainly the case that you need a team of people. You need to hand overs to each of those different people. And you know, they're connected to each other. I mean, take, for example, PhD students. I think PhD students are perfect candidates to run startup companies of professors. Why? I mean, firstly, only about 20% of PhD students find jobs into academia. So yes. the majority of them will go beyond academia. They're well imbued within a scientific context. They've had several years to understand the discovery and they have an interest in that in-between space. That's why they've done PhDs. I mean, I think these are perfect candidates for entrepreneurship. And that has proven true. I mean, if you look again, just having recently come back from Stanford, if you look at the Stanford graduate program, firstly, it's, you know, its graduate program is as big as its undergraduate program. Secondly, most of its PhD students, if not all of them, are on fellowships or scholarships, many of which are funded by industry. And the reason industry want to fund those scholarships is it's a talent search, but it's a talent search of a particular type of person, someone who's in their mid to late 20s, early 30s perhaps, who is discovery-minded, who wants to make a difference is excellent in the science. So these are the perfect people to hire into R&D labs within companies or invest in as entrepreneurs to push the, the field or industry forward in some particular way. You, as a university leader, are you concerned about who owns the intellectual property in these arrangements? I mean, I think that, um, you know, we have to find intellectual property arrangements that work for impact. I mean, yes. I think our job at university is not to put a lock and key about IP so it can die slow and, and isolate a death. <laughs> this is not a kind of managing a pandemic here. We, we want the IP to get out into the world and to have an impact. So we need to find the IP arrangement that makes sense. And what makes sense is about building trust in our systems and processes. Now, without getting into the specifics of what that looks like, I mean, I think that it's worth noting that, you know, Australian universities and the Australian adventure community and is on a journey, a journey that places in the UK and the US have gone on before and they've built up that trust and they can move forward. I mean, it may surprise people to learn that at a lot of the Ivy universities, it's just can't blanche the fact that they own the IP. Yes. And that's not contested by the likes of Google and Apple and Amazon and others. Why? Well, because they know that, they're comfortable with it, they've made a lot of money from that in the past and it's just germane to what they want to do. Two, they're really there to find talent anyway. So, you know, they achieve their goals in that direction. And three, there's a whole range of other challenges to kind of maturing things that are specifically related to some of the intellectual issues around IP. I mean, in some cases, like in computer science, for example, most of the code that's being developed is open source anyway. So IP regimes are relatively archaic mechanisms for protection. They won't necessarily work, even if you did own all the IP. So point being here that... We don't, never want IP to be in the way. There is, There are parts of our community that are distrustful and will take the statement that I've made as me trying to be guarded about this, but I'm not particularly guarded. I just think we just need to work out what has an impact, where everyone's treated fairly, where there's due reward for the work that's done. But ultimately, the purpose behind 
that and the thing we need to build trust about around is that this work counts and has an impact in the world and gets out there, not that it has an isolated and slow death. Something I see sometimes in research is a difficulty for scientists or researchers to validate problems, applications. Yeah. Uh, do you agree with that? How, how can we help? Yeah, I think that um, it's a great observation. And, you know, one of the things that we well, I built through design-led strategy, you know, and Rom, you'll be personally familiar with this, yes. but I think the concept applies broadly, is that we need to think about the way in which we do prototyping. Because on the one hand, if we say that universities and researchers have strength in discovery, and on the other hand, industry has advantages in efficiency and scale of production. What we need to do is develop prototypes of discovery to a certain point of maturity where at least you can stress test with end users or customers or some points of validation whether or not this is going to be a good idea. Now, what we're seeing is that the cost of manufacturing prototypes is falling to zero. I mean, yes. you look in, in the kind of traditional manufacturing sectors like car and automotives, and they're doing final product reviews on cars through virtual reality. Unity Technologies allows you to drop CAD programming into their technology, into Unity, and you can do final product review on colour, shape of cars, and it's a digital it's a digital artefact. So I think in the physical world of manufacture through to the medicinal world where we can do cheap, basic drug manufacture, through to even in social policy where we can begin to prototype social interventions the ability to kind of do these early testing around prototypes is at the essence of how we get through that. And just on that final point about social interventions and prototyping, I mean, this is one of the great breakthroughs that's happening in the social sciences field is that, you know, we can now run data analytics and statistics on interventions, like interventions that we do in public schools or interventions we do on public health programs and begin to measure and analyse the, the effect of that statistically significant levels in a way we haven't been able to do before. And, you know, combined with sensor technology and other things like this. So to cut a long story short, it is an issue. It is costly, but the cost of manufacture is dropping radically. Prototyping is, I think, the best way to get through the early stage barriers of end user engagement with prototypes. And I think we need to think carefully and openly about how we do that. And I think it's probably some sort of collaborative infrastructure that needs to be built between universities and industry and some sort of consortia that allow that prototyping to be accelerated in the most cost-effective way possible. Right. I think the opportunity here is the trust that industry has in research and the value they see in all the prototyping work that they do. They, industry believes research produces good prototypes. Absolutely. I mean, and just further to that, we need to build a proper and deep industrial base in Australia to do the prototyping, do the R&D, so that when we partner with international companies, that's not just the marketing and sales wing out of um, Asia Pacific that's based in Sydney, but they're genuine R&D. And I think that, you know, it goes two ways. Not only can we more cheaply manufacture prototypes in Australia, but prototypes that are manufactured in Australia can more easily go out into the world, into the US, and be tested in market. You don't necessarily need to have you know, factories and so forth set up in America to be able to test prototypes at scale that are developed in Australia. So I think we, we do need to build the trust with industry, but we need more industry. We need more international industry that's typically domiciled offshore to come to Australia. And why is it going to come to Australia? Well, because we have a talent in spades that is well-trained in top universities that's often multilingual, that's multicultural, 
and that are looking for jobs. And when you go to the west coast of the United States, they can't find people in Seattle and San Francisco anymore that fall into that demographic. Well, you know, you take a single flight away and you can get to a similar climate in Sydney and have that talent in abundance. And I think we all, and hopefully anyone who listens to this podcast is mobilised by that mission, and we can work together in in telling the story of how Australia is a real global talent pool for international science and R&D. Right. And, and following on that point, I think we can have an impact internationally, overseas, not just in Australia, but internationally. But how do we evaluate impact? Is it a numbers game? Is it the, the more people we impact, the better? Is it the more lives, the better? How do we evaluate impact? Well, I mean, I think the impact will be multifaceted and the metrics that you would use will depend a little bit on the sector that you're sitting within, right? So from within an education sector perspective, you know, we, we would be thinking about the education piece of the business in terms of students. So how many of our students, PhDs are finding jobs, finding jobs that they want in industries that they find interesting that are using their skills in a relevant way that is allowing them to have the job they want to have, not just in Australia, but internationally. And likewise for our, you know, for all levels. And then on our research that our research is moving beyond justice publication into application with the creation of new companies who are taking our technology forward and licensing our IP and so on and so forth. So there are all kinds of lead indicators that you can imagine there. And then I think each company will have, you know, a measure of its impact, the number of customers it's able to um, reach, the number of patients it's able to treat, so on and so forth. I think what's the measure of impact? Like utilisation. Are the ideas, are the technologies um, that we're developing being taken up? And the barriers to taking those things up, which we all need to work through, are both tackling the science problem, tackling the economics issues, getting the political context right, amongst other things. And I think um, we each want to chip away at particular problems. Now, taking a global perspective on that, where are the areas where Australia has particular challenges that have a worldwide relevance, right? Because we can solve some of the biggest problems in the people who spend a lot of time at beaches solve, but not everywhere in the world has beautiful beaches like us. You know, I do think sustainability is a major issue of global relevance. So the extent to which we can show how we decarbonize an energy sector and scale and deploy technologies in our kind of climate. And we, if we can show that at scale, that technology will have relevance around the world. I do think healthcare technologies where we have a kind of Medicare-based health system in a multicultural patient population. So you can test you know, new drugs and new interventions amongst a diverse population pool is a real competitive advantage that allows us to take things forward. I mean, there are already a number of pharmaceutical companies that do a lot of their early stage clinical trials in Australia because of our patient population, because of our regulatory context. But broadly, health and sustainability, I think, are areas where Australia can and should play on a global stage in the deployment, the creation and deployment of new technologies. And this is going to come from the younger generation of researchers. And maybe just to encourage... Well, well sometimes, but also there are established researchers. I mean, Martin Green at UNSW, where you're at, um, Rom, is an example of someone who's had a huge impact in solar energy technology. Now, you know, how do we support Martin to find the next wave of PhDs and postdocs to, you know, to support his research. I mean, some of his colleagues like Xi Zhong, who did Suntec Power Corporation, has had a huge impact in China. But, you know, if we can do the next Xi and the, the next Martin Green and others to have an impact in solar, but beyond solar, I mean, I think that's where Australia really can make a big difference in the world. 
And, you know, within that story, of course, is the is our relevance within the region. Our relevance to the Asia time zone and the attributes that we have in Australia relative to the huge footprint that China has on the world economy means that if we can be relevant in that context, we'll have a huge impact in the world. I think what you're describing is a very positive, but also a very true, very likely scenario for research in the next few years. And maybe I'm, I'm conscious. I hope so, I'm, <laughs> I'm just conscious I've, I've taken a lot of your time already. So what would you say to convince more young people to come into research and have an impact on the world? Well, I mean, firstly, I think being an academic is one of the most exciting and meaningful careers that anyone can pursue. So why? Because you have both the autonomy to think creatively, the license to have an impact for all the reasons I've just described. And you're going to come work with me, work at the University of Sydney, and I'll make sure that you are able to fill the potential there. But thirdly, you know, you can also have a real difference in the students that you teach and the inspiration you can give them to go on and do great things. So with those job conditions in mind, I think academia is a great career. Then you have to balance the issue of global context because Australia has great universities, but the United States, the United Kingdom have really amazing universities at a very large scale. So I do think that the ability to, so to your question, how do you inspire academics coming in? I think explaining to newly minted academics that they need to think globally, the world is their oyster. They need to be traveling and walk at least consider traveling to the West Coast of the United States, the East Coast of the United States, through the United Kingdom, Europe, getting to know their peers globally and learning from the best in the world rather than just not thinking about just the best in Australia or just the best in their state, I think is really crucial both for them to have an impact and secondly for them to find their job meaningful and interesting. So I think that I think that that is the way forward and you know the internet and hopefully when our travel returns only makes that possibility more easy for Australian academics, more so than it was perhaps 10, 20, 30 years ago, where the travel and the internet made it more difficult to to have that global impact from an Australian base. Right. Look, Eric, I think this was a very positive conversation. It's given me a lot of hopes for uh, what's to come now. Thank you very, very much for your time. And I will leave more details if people want to learn more about your work and what you do at the University of Sydney after the, the podcast. Thank you very much, Eric. Okay, thanks so much, Ron. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Research for What. To connect and find more information about this episode, check out researchforwhat.com. Until next week. Research for What.